Today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. Autoimmunity on a metaphorical level, it's attack of self, right? And Gabor Mate writes about how there is proneness with autoimmunity with either self-loathing or self-hatred or not accepting yourself. So I had to really come to grips with loving and accepting myself for who I am and showing up that way and not trying to be what everybody else wants me to be. And that was part of the healing. And then with breast cancer, especially it's a nurturing organ, right? Like that's how we nurture our babies in the world. And there's also association with breast cancer in like over nurturing, putting everyone else ahead of your own needs. And I come from kind of a fundamental, you know, religious background. And so there was a lot about like denying self and not, so like self-love wasn't a concept I grew up with. It was like, oh, we can't talk about that. And then I realized, oh my goodness, part of the healing, you have to love yourself and you can only love yourself if you trust yourself. And so part of, I talk about there, the intuition is trusting that, you know, like if you're a patient listening and you've been to a doctor's office and they've looked at the labs and they're like, well, everything looks good. You must be fine. Or they give you a antidepressant because they think you're psychosomatic. And that's very real for so many of the listeners, so many of our patients, sadly. And that just, it denies your sense of what you believe to be true. Like something really is wrong. And after enough gaslighting, then people start to think, well, maybe it's all in my head. Hello, hello. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones. And today I am thrilled to talk with the Dr. Jill Carnahan, a badass doctor that I completely fangirl over all the time. She's the owner of Flatiron Functional Medicine Clinic in Colorado and a highly sought after international speaker and educator. Her new book, Unexpected, Finding Resilience Through Functional Medicine, Science and Faith, is coming out soon and you are going to love it. I read it in a weekend. Today, we are talking about her health journey through breast cancer, mold, toxicity, and trauma, all while giving you guidance on where to start on your own journey. Before we get started though, I wanna talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that of course, is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. If you are an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you're placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health, and Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 30 different labs in one single place for free. Thank goodness, no need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. If you are a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create a free account today. Now, let's start the show. Dr. Jill Carnahan, I am so excited to have you on the Root Cause Medicine podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Dr. Carey. So good to be here with you. Oh my gosh. Well, first, for everyone listening, we are talking about her new book called Unexpected, and I probably read it in two days. I read it cover to cover. My husband was like, what are you reading? And I was like, first of all, I fangirl over Jill. Second of all, her book is so good that for everyone listening, you need to stop right now and go to where you order books in order. <laughs> order her book, which will come out in March, but she's pre-launching in December, which is probably when you're hearing this podcast. So I highly recommend everyone get it because Jill has quite a story around her, her health, her family, medicine, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So again, I just really appreciate you being on the podcast. Oh, it is my honor and privilege, and I have such deep respect and admiration for you. So we're mutual fangirls. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. 
So I want to jump in. One of the first things when you, when I was reading, you have these, these little subsets of quotes that are outlined and really helpful. And one of them is where you said you used to feel like disease starts in the gut. Now you feel disease all starts in the soil. We really need to pay attention to the soil. And you also talk about the bucket full of toxins analogy. And I wanted to just kick off with that because I don't think a lot of people think about our soil, but yet you have a very special relationship given your upbringing. So can we start with that? What do you mean by that? You got it. And I love that we're going here because I grew up on a farm in Illinois where there's beautiful, dark, rich soil. We grew corn and soybeans and it was both a blessing because it helped me. I mean, I was the income my father allowed to raise me, but also it was my enemy because I was incredibly allergic as a child to corn and soybeans. In hindsight, Dr. Carey, I think it was the mold on the corn and soybeans, not just the crops themselves. Now, I actually still do have a sensitivity to corn and soy as a food, but I really think it was the mold. on That was my first story with mold, and I didn't even know it. All that to say, I realized there's this like love-hate relationship with the soil because it brought me, like it raised me. It, it was my family's and generations back, they were farmers. It's such an incredible connection with the soil because you can see the food growing and then being harvested and then sometimes on your table. Now, this was like field corn. So it was usually used for animal feed or corn chips or things like that, but not all for human consumption. Either way, there was this deep connection. And what I realized over the years is the way that we are managing soils and losing our topsoils and environmental changes and things, we're really, really doing harm as we apply chemicals and do changes and we're not really taking care of that. What we've seen and you and I've seen in medical practice is the depletion of nutrients in the soil leads to number one, depletion of nutrients in the human. So like I always say, the magnesium in an apple today is about one fifth of what it was 50 or 100 years ago. So we might be eating good organic, closely grown local farmer kind of good organic produce, but it's depleted in nutrients and that comes from the soil. And the way this relates to the microbiome and our health, which is why I say autoimmune, we'll get there, I promise, is because those depletions and those application of chemicals like glyphosate, glyphosate is a mineral chelator. So it was originally used chelated minerals. And what it does is it allows the mineral chelation pulls that minerals that weeds need to survive. And then they've genetically modified corn and soy that, so they can resist that roundup. And so the corn and soy survives, but all the weeds and growths around them die because they're minerally depleted. So if you can imagine a mineral chelator in our soils and then be coming on our foods, it happens the same in our gut. So what happens is if we get glyphosate residues on our wheat or corn or soy, which are any processed food product, you will not find a processed food product out there that doesn't have wheat, corn, or soy on it. And many of those are sprayed with glyphosate. So their residues are in our baby formula, our soy formula. They're in our all of our products that have wheat, corn, or soy in them. So we're getting doses of Roundup in our guts every single day, unless we're eating 100% organic and being really careful. And even then, I don't believe that it's free of glyphosate because years ago, when I first tested, I was eating 100% organic. And my level, when I tested my urine, before, when the test first came out, was three times the level of farmers on application day. That was my first aha. I'm like, oh my goodness, where am I getting this now? I had dogs that walked on the grasses that were sprayed on my condo and slept in my bed. And we now find that organic California wines have traces of glyphosate. So there's all over, even in organic products. But that's the story because what happens with glyphosate is in our gut, it chelates minerals. So our microbiome can't survive. And it preferentially kills the good guys like bifidobacter and lactobacillus and allows things like clostridia, which can cause C. diff colitis and all kinds of disorders to grow. So we have this imbalance of microbiome based on the stuff that's applied to our soils. 
And then as we, if we don't restore those mineral contents, our nutrients in our food, even good organic food is being depleted. So we're having less nutrient dense food, no matter where we get it or how we get it. We're having soils that the topsoil is eroded off. So then there gets degradation and it doesn't have the quality nutrients. We have the application of fertilizers, pesticides, glyphosate that affect our soils. And it's such a reflection of our gut. And then that goes to the autoimmune story because the gut immune connection is where it's like, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas because gut immune, that's the place that's like Vegas. That's where everything happens with the immune system. It's our one cell layer thick between the gut lumen and the immune system, which is the bloodstream. And if that is destroyed, there's leaky gut or there's chemicals passing through or there's abnormal microbes. That's often the start of autoimmunity because the immune system gets a wrong signal and starts to attack self. And it just continues and goes into this cycle over and over and over again. And actually, one of the other things you talk about, obviously, is the liver. I want to, we're going to continue on the gut, but one of the things with the liver I often see on social media, and you might too, is I'll see these maybe more conventionally inclined doctors who let their followers know that the liver is just fine. The liver does its job fine. It doesn't need any other support. It was designed perfectly. You don't need to do any other extra nutrients or minerals or this or that to support the liver. And I just feel listening to everything you just said. And every time I hear them, I'm like, but that's, I just don't agree. It takes a lot of nutrients for your liver to do its job. And then when you are getting exposed to all these toxicities, it's a lot. It's way different than 50 or 100 years ago what our poor little liver has to go through. You said it exactly right because yes, they're right in the sense of our liver was designed to detox. We were created that way. It's geared that way. We have everything we need in our bodies to detoxify. However, what they didn't take into account is their environmentally toxic load is increasing exponentially every year with chemicals that we have no idea really how they work or how much toxicity we're taking on. And as this toxicity increases exponentially every year, we are losing our margin. And you mentioned the bucket. So I'll explain that real quickly here. So our, I think of it as a bucket analogy of how we detoxify. We all are born with a bucket. Some of us, like myself, have less robust genetics that detoxify. So our buckets might be smaller. And I always say, you know, that grandfather that's 95 and has a gin and tonic in one hand and a cigar in another, and they're doing just fine. And they're like totally great for their age. That person probably was born with a great detox bucket. And as that bucket over a lifetime fills up with the chemical exposures, now we have PFAOs in our environment, which is like Teflon and and the water resistant and the Gore-Tex on our clothing and even the stain resistant stuff on our carpets and furnitures, those are forever chemicals, which mean, I just read the other day, scientists can't even calculate the half-life. They don't even know what half-life is and they think 50, 100 years. So these things are in our environment almost like permanently. And that's just one example. And as the toxic load increases, our bucket increases and our liver can do the job to a certain point. But when our bucket gets full and the water level starts to spill over the, the top with the analogy that our toxic load is increasing, all of a sudden our liver, our liver gets behind. It can't really keep up anymore. So what you're describing is real because we need more nutrients, more support, more enhancement of whatever we can do. And it might be things like infrared sauna or Epsom salt baths or dry brushing, or it might be things like extra glutathione or nutrients because we need to support that liver. When I was in Swiss, the Swiss Mountain Clinic a couple of years ago for a liver gallbladder detox, the German docs there were amazing. And they would always talk about the liver's queen. And I love that analogy, right? I know it's like, oh, the liver's our queen because it's almost like the Rodney Dangerfield. It doesn't get much respect in conventional medicine. And yet the liver is like so critical. And just to briefly, for those listeners who don't know this, it's called biotransformation. What happens is a toxic chemical, a toxic substance 
comes into phase one of the liver and the liver transforms that into this intermediate. This intermediate is actually more toxic than the first thing. So if you get stuck there and your second part of the liver, the phase two isn't working, you can become really sick. And a lot of times the Herxheimer reactions are the sickness we get if we detoxify too fast or take on too many nutrients too quickly or whatever we're doing, even infrared sauna too much too quickly, you get stuck in the middle and you feel worse than you did in the beginning. But then that middle intermediate is taken by phase two and conjugated into bile acids and the bile acids which are stored in the gallbladder are released into your gut and that's one way as they go through the stool and get excreted that we can eliminate this toxic load through that liver pathway this is why one thing that's so helpful is things that enhance like nutrients like b vitamins and glutathione and nac and alpha lipoic acid and all of those factors help that process and the liver are queen I love that. The queen. Well, you actually also talk about the highly sensitive person. And can you explain that? Because I know I've had a lot of patients over the years who go, I just feel extra sensitive. I can't walk into a perfume aisle. I can't use scented lotion. If I'm on an airplane and somebody next to me has got something on their clothing or their skin or their shampoo, I just get a massive headache and something's wrong with me. And I love in your book, you go, there's nothing wrong with you, but you are the canary in the coal mine. Yeah. So you and I see these people because I'm one of them because we are the ones and it's beautiful. It's the gift and the curse. I always say. So first thing is Elaine Aaron wrote about highly sensitive person. And she was referring to more of a psychological personality thing where um, sights and sounds and interactions with people. I'm social. I'm probably an extrovert by nature, but I get overwhelmed easily. So after two hours at a business mixer, I'm like enough, go back to my hotel room and have room service, right? Like I'm the type of person. I love to be out there, but I get overwhelmed by too much, too many people, too many sounds. And my nightmare is like amusement parks. There's too, there's sights and sounds and heat and smell and most people love those. That's too much for my nervous system. So understanding that she re- writes about basically this 10 to 15% of the population that has a nervous system that just is a little bit more easily overwhelmed with sights and sounds. Now, the gift in that, there's always a gift. The gift in that is that we perceive nuances, details a lot more than the average. So we might see patterns. We might see details in nature. We might hear a sound that no one else heard. Or So there is a gift in that. And even with patients, I find if I listen carefully, I might pick up little bits and pieces that no one else picked up before me. So there's a gift there. But this highly sensitive person, I took it to a different level in the book. And I wrote about how those are also the chemically sensitive, the ones that are sensitive to, like you mentioned, the detergent aisle. In medicine, we call it multiple chemical sensitivity. And another analogy there is when that happens, you can almost guarantee your little bucket has gotten full because a sign of the bucket becoming full and the water spilling over the edge is you become very sensitive because you have no margin in your bucket to deal with these scents and things. So I feel like not only the emotional component goes hand in hand with the chemical and physical component. And these are the people who primarily are coming to functional doctors because they're like, everybody says I'm okay, but I know I'm extra sensitive and something's going on here. And they tend to be the ones that in our toxic environment, they're the 10 to 15% that first say, hey, our environment's toxic. I'm getting sick. Whereas the old man with the gin and tonic is like, hey, everything's fine. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I also love you just speaking of the first part of it, the mental emotional piece, you also talk about stress toxicity. Toxicity doesn't have to be only things like glyphosate or only things like an ingredient in your makeup and your skincare. It can be emotional toxicity. It can be a relationship that you're in or a friendship that you have or a family and, and the importance of evaluating that as well. Can you talk about that? 
Yeah. So it's interesting because years ago when I was like, I want to write a book on environmental toxicity and how to get well. And that was kind of the theme. And then it transitioned to, oh my goodness, I have to tell my story. And I realized that has to be part of it. But then even further, I was like, wow, because what happened when I first thought about the book, I had been through mold and cancer and all kinds of things. And I knew I wanted to tell that story and how to overcome. But in the several years since I went through a divorce, I went through some really hellacious relationships with I can really even say this, psychopath, like really unhealthy relationships. And all that I learned is like, oh, there's a whole nother level here of toxicity on that relational. And then even my relationship with myself and with my inner self and the trauma healing and the work childhood, all those kinds of things really, really, really were powerful in my own healing. And I realized we have to think about environmental toxicity, but we also have to think about what our relationships, are they healthy? Are they supportive? Or do we have good boundaries? Are we all these kinds of things? And they really have a strong impact on our health. So it's kind of that toxicity on all levels, metaphorically, realistically, relationally, emotionally, et cetera. In the book, for people who don't know, which I'm going to save a lot of it, but Dr. Jill has been through a lot, like (laughs) a lot when you read her story. And so I think the importance of bringing in that relationship toxicity is good because as I said, cancer, mold, allergies, that's what people are familiar with when you say toxicity or maybe relatable just in general as they read your story. But the sheer number of people I know, and of course patients, when we get down to it, when they're who they hang out with, their community, who they share a bed with, their families, they that's a harder, that can be in some regards, a harder toxicity to overcome than maybe something like cancer and mold because you don't think of it as adding to your toxic burden. You don't think about the partnerships you have, the friendships, your family is contributing until somebody points it out. And then you're like, oh crap, person is a psychopath or that is toxic or that isn't helping. That is contributing to my, the fullness of my bucket. So I'm sure it was extremely hard to write about, but it was, I think it's going to be immensely helpful both ends of the spectrum for people who are struggling. I do too. And that's why I like, I mean, you know how personal this journey is. And that was kind of scary to put that out there. Like I'm really revealing a lot of my story and I don't hold anything back. But what I realized was, first of all, people relate to story. That's our connective tissue to the soul. And like, so unless I really share and be vulnerable, it that only encourages you or any other listener or reader to be vulnerable as well and to go inside and kind of look at these things. And the second thing I realized is in my own healing journey, yeah, cancer, Crohn's, mold, and I did all these things on the outside and I was still stuck in some ways. And the biggest transformational things I've seen in my own health were actually working with my inner child, reparenting, trauma work, and then also healthy relationships. But I couldn't really see the unhealthiness of the relationships or get into a healthier state until I dealt with my own emotional issues and self-hatred versus self-love. And you know, autoimmunity on a metaphorical level, it's attack of self, right? And Gabor Mate writes about how there is proneness with autoimmunity with either self-loathing or self-hatred or not accepting yourself. So I had to really come to grips with loving and accepting myself for who I am and showing up that way and not trying to be what everybody else wants me to be. And that was part of the healing. And then with breast cancer, especially it's a nurturing organ, right? Like that's how we nurture our babies in the world. And there's also association with breast cancer in like over nurturing, putting everyone else ahead of your own needs. And I come from kind of a fundamental, you know, religious background. And so there was a lot about like denying self and not, so like self-love wasn't a concept I grew up with. It was like, oh, we can't talk about that. And then I realized, oh my goodness, part of the healing, you have to love yourself and you can only love yourself if you trust yourself. And so part of, I talk about there, the intuition is trusting that, you know, like if you're a patient listening and you've been to a doctor's office and they've looked at the labs and they're like, 
well, everything looks good. You must be fine. Or they give you an antidepressant because they think you're psychosomatic. And that's very real for so many of the listeners, so many of our patients, sadly. And that just, it denies your sense of what you believe to be true. Like something really is wrong. And after enough gaslighting, then people start to think, well, maybe it's all in my head. And you and I know that so often there's a real cause. So I feel like real important to speak to that because we can't really love ourselves in the healing way I'm talking about until we trust that we do know what's best for ourselves and that we do have information that even a professional like a doctor may not know or may not believe. I love that. I love that so much. And actually going back to breast cancer, I got this question yesterday on social media. And I thought, man, how perfect. I'm interviewing Dr. Jill today. So somebody had wrote on, in, they slid into my DMs and they said, I have breast cancer and everybody's pointing to estrogen, but I don't believe it's estrogen by itself. Is it possible things like my gut health, the foods that I'm eating, my emotions, other things like that could be contributing to the development of breast cancer. It's not just estrogen, is it? And I was like, oh, this is such a good question for Jill. This is a great question because 100%. So like I said, first of all, you're probably impaired detoxification at some point because estrogen is just like a drug, even though it's made by our bodies. Again, I know you're the expert here, but our bodies still have to detoxify it. So if you have excess estrogen, yes, that is a piece of the puzzle. But the other pieces are, it, just like I talked about my bucket, if I grew up on the farm, I had lots of toxicity from chemicals on the farm. We didn't talk about, we talked about glyphosate, but organophosphates are endocrine disruptors, which means things like pesticides and herbicides can act on your body like a hormone, like estrogen, but it's not from our body inside. And so many women are walking around putting stuff on their face, stuff on their bodies, shampooing their hair, or using perfumes or things with phthalates, parabens, endocrine disruptors, and they don't even know it. Their estrogen inside might be fine, but they're putting things on their body that make their body think they mimic estrogen, which makes that more prone. So that's one big piece of the puzzle is toxicity. Number two is this whole liver thing, because as liver is how we internally process our own organs. And if there's stresses on that or things that aren't working well, even our own hormones in normal regulatory levels can be toxic because we can't eliminate them properly, or we turn them into something they were never meant to be like a 4-hydroxy estrogen or something weird, right? So those things all play into it. But then like you mentioned the toxic emotions, and I talked twice in the book once about the nurturing and putting everybody ahead of yourself and not loving yourself and not having good boundaries. There's, again, it's more metaphorical, but there is evidence. Dr. Gabor Mate writes about it with the breast cancer and that kind of I think they call it type C personality, which is not really. And then the other part is that whole giving, 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 giving. And that's a way to deal with trauma because we're all taking care of other people. We really don't need, think about this. If you're taking care of everybody else in your world, which we've been probably both known to do, I don't mm-hmm. know how you are, but right? as women in this, it's so easy to do, but we don't really take time for ourselves, or we don't let someone give to us. We don't receive. So we're not like letting someone cook us a meal or let, it almost gives us a power differential. We don't maybe consciously know it. It's not like we're trying to go out there and be powerful or like, but the truth is, it doesn't create vulnerability or a need. Like I didn't know how to ask for needs for a very long time, but when I did, it creates vulnerability. It's like, oh, I need you to help me with this. All of a sudden you're vulnerable. You need someone to help you, but that's the human condition. And if we don't go there and all this to say with breast cancer, the personality of breast cancer, this is not hundred percent true, but many women with breast cancer are these nurturing, they're caring, they're giving, but they don't know how to receive love. And I had to learn that. And it's actually harder than you think, because when you receive all of a sudden you're vulnerable and if you have sadness or grief for things you've never taken care of, they can bubble up and be uncomfortable. Because again, it's an easier thing, at least for me, to give and to take care of people, right? So this is all part of the breast cancer story. It's way bigger than just hormones. I had a patient who was obsessed with her dogs. And so she gave and gave to her family and she would everything, anything the dogs needed. 
And finally, one day I said to her, I need you to at least put yourself on the same level of the dogs. Like, I need you to be, I can understand if you don't want to be above the dogs, they're your babies, but I need you to be at least at the same level of your dogs. Give yourself that sort of love and nurturing and don't put yourself below the dogs at the very least. And that really hit home for her to realize that she was giving everybody else, including her dogs, everything and leaving nothing for herself. And that's why she was in my office because she felt terrible. And I thought, yep. Thank you. You mentioned this earlier, but I just want to mention too, one of the profound things when you talk about environmental toxicity and these toxicity on all levels, including emotional relationship, what I realized was this, here I am, a business person, I have successful practice and in business, I was doing well and loving people and seeing patients and all that. But I think there's many women who are professionals that know how to do the business and do the medicine and do the things that you and I do. But maybe on that personal level, their relationships aren't that great because they put so much into the business. And I'm just speaking for my own self. I realized, oh my goodness, this is a big fail. If I know all the business and I'm successful and outwardly people are like, oh, well, Jill has it all together. But then if they saw five years ago, the kind of men I was dating, like, are you kidding me, Jill? And so I realized there was really work to do there. And I think this is common to a lot of successful women right? They have all of these things together in their life. And then their personal relationships are like, if they really look at them, they're not healthy at all. And that was me. So I realized we have to talk about this. (laughs) Well, we all have that friend or a sister or a cousin. Like we've all been there where we've said those exact words out of your mouth. We're like, she is so top of her game and amazing. She's this, she's that. She's so smart. She's so like, why is she dating that person? (laughs) What are they doing together? Why would she, what are you doing? And this is why, this is great. I love that you're talking about. And you know, Carrie, it comes from, again, if you don't deal with that inner, I realized it was a little five-year-old girl that was picking the wrong guys. Yashin had a message from her family. And and again, I've had a, I had a wonderful family. I want to be real clear about that. There was no awful abuse or anything, but everybody has little things, right? And so I realized that I had to really reconnect with certain family members and make sure that was healed because that five-year-old little girl was making really bad decisions. And once that was healed, now I can never go back. I look back and like, why would I have ever dated that kind of a person? Like I'll never do it again, but we have to heal that inner, whether it's feeling unworthy, feeling unlovable, whatever thing that message, once we heal that, then we can date the right kind of people and the healthier relationships. But you have to go deep to get that healed or you'll just keep making the same. And anyone who's listening, if you've ever had like, why do I always date the same kind of guy, right? (laughs) Like that's the message to you. Like, okay, well, look at what that little five-year-old girl's driving the show. And if she's driving the show and she's wounded, you're going to, until you heal her, and heal her heart and show her she's worthy of unconditional love and acceptance, you're going to keep picking the wrong guys. <laughs> well, and actually, this is a really good question because the one of the next questions I want to ask is about mold. But because we're on the wounded five-year-old and the mental emotional, a lot of people in their brain don't feel good, right? They have a lot of inflammation. So they have a lot of depression. They have a lot of fatigue. They have a lot of anxiety because of whatever, mold or foods or toxicity, et cetera, et cetera. And on top of it, they have the mental, emotional toxicity, relationship toxicity as well. So when you are working to heal this, I know people are listening and going, well, I have mold exposure or Lyme or whatever it is. And I, that's me. I'm choosing the wrong people in my life. How do I address this? Where do I start? Other than read her book. How do I, what do I do? (laughs) Oh, this is such a great question because it's so linked up. And like, again, I could have told you five, six years ago, everything was great. 
until then my marriage collapsed and there was, oh, there's a whole nother level of healing. And then I went through a divorce and all that brought about a lot of stuff I'm sharing right now. So where do you start? How do you heal? First of all, when you're in mold, you'll hear this in the book, but I realized as I researched, literally, we know that mold is traumatic and there's a limbic system part of it. And what this means is that exposure literally chemically, when you inhale mold spores and mold toxins, goes into your amygdala and can create kind of a trauma response so that you're very fearful of more exposures. And it's not just that you're psychologically, oh, that was a bad experience. It's literally that chemical exposure. This is what I learned when I was writing the book, can trigger the amygdala outside of the fact you might be like, oh, I'm going to be fine. No problem. I can handle mold. But the chemical exposure, the smell, and if you've ever been somewhere, my example is back when I got chemotherapy, one of the drugs I got into my veins was red. It was doxyrubicin. And that red medicine, every time I get it, it was like a Pavlov response, I'd get really nauseous and sick and I was lost in my hair and it was a horrible like chemo effects. And for two years after red food, red color would trigger nausea because there was a link, right? With that red color and the nausea and that linked in my system. And even though I knew I'm like, that's a red apple, right? Or whatever it was, or a red sweatshirt or some red color. And it's like, that's not going to cause nausea. I could know that here, but it didn't matter because that amygdala response bypasses your frontal cortex, which is what tells you kind of the thinking of it. So all that to say, the same with mold, mold toxicity has a traumatic effect no matter who you are, no matter how well-regulated you are. And I remember in the midst of my trauma, it was just pure survival, like with mold. When I say trauma, I mean the mold trauma, the mold exposure. And so I think if you're in relation, first of all, in the midst of that kind of a really toxic issue or getting well from it, you need supportive relationships. So you're going to, I think to get well, you almost make, have to make sure you're surrounded by at least a few people who love you and support you because it's such an all-encompassing thing. And when you're in the mold, sometimes the, the lack of insight makes it extra hard because you almost don't know how bad it is. And then you really need to focus on your health, getting out, surviving, getting sleep, like all the basics. So I would say in the midst of that, it's really hard to restore a toxic relationship. I would say you want to heal the mold toxicity and deal with that first. And often during that, if the relationships, I also saw this in breast cancer, I was with about eight to 10 women under 40 and they all had relationships. And we realized very quickly, those who had strong relationships, when they got diagnosed with cancer, they got stronger. And those who had toxic relationships, they broke apart because when you're facing a life-threatening illness, all of a sudden you're like, okay, I have six months to live. Do I want to live with this person? And it was either, yes, I want to give every moment to them or no. And you'd make dramatic life-altering decisions to move, to divorce, to get closer, whatever pieces you would do, to talk to your parents you never talked to for 10 years, whatever piece it was, you would make those decisions because you knew your life could end. And I think it brought kind of a importance to those things. But back to the mold, I think that in that you could find some realizations, but you probably have to get your health back before you can focus on, because you're not going to have the energy, time and resources to focus on the relationship as much. And actually speaking of mold, I love you have been an absolute pioneer in the education of mold because I don't think people, even to this day, there's more awareness around mold, but they don't realize how toxic it really can be. And I want to touch on that for people who are new to the concept of mold or maybe are looking at the mold growing in the corner of their room right now or in the shower or what have you been thinking, eh, it's mold. Mildew. Right. It's, <laughs> it's okay. But in reality, it can be really not okay. Yeah. So your grandmother's mildew and nowadays, like, first of all, what's the difference? So the, because we put 
fungicides, anti-mold, anti-fungus in paints in the 1970s, just like antibiotic resistance, we've kind of bred super molds that grow indoors now. And then because we have often very efficient buildings that don't exchange air from the outside, all of a sudden we have more toxic species growing inside and then we have less air exchange. So you'd actually be better off in a log cabin with like cracks between the logs than you would in a LEED certified highly efficient building nowadays if there was mold inside because you would have no air exchange and it becomes more toxic. And what people don't realize is most people don't know when they walk into my office and I say, do you have mold in your house? 99% are like, no, I'm fine, right? No one knows or talks about it or thinks it's an issue. But what happens is you might come in with new diagnosis of neurological symptoms, numbness, tingling, cognitive decline, memory issues, word finding, or you might have new onset chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia, or you might have new onset hormone disorders because mold can cause aromatase to upregulate that estrogen. And all of a sudden your tender breast, heavy painful periods, fibroids, endometriosis, PCOS, all of these things can be related to mold because that can drive the imbalance of hormones even more. So you might come in with that. Dr. Bredesen, who teaches on Alzheimer's, says one in three, which is crazy to me, one in three new onset, early onset, like 50s, 60s dementia is mold related. Oh, wow. Crazy, right? I know that statistic is mind-blowing. That's from Dale Bredesen, the expert. And so this, so all of a sudden, cognitive issues are huge with mold. So you're just like, oh, I'm in my 50s, I'm getting older. No, it could be mold. Autoimmunity, massively driven by mold. Mass cell activation. These are two things that are huge epidemics that are like ready to explode as far as the numbers and the amount of people. So that could be like Hashimoto's thyroiditis, Crohn's or colitis or multiple sclerosis or lupus or MS, or I could name a number of those, most of the itises. And all of those could be root cause molds. You might be told by the doctor, you have Hashimoto's thyroiditis, take this thyroid medicine. But the truth is behind your wall in your bedroom, there's black mold growing, driving that autoimmunity. Talk about the gut. Mold massively affects the gut, increases permeability, changes the microbiome. So you could come in with gut disorders, IBS, or any sort of gut issue. And it could be so all these things have labels. You might get given a label or a diagnosis. And root cause would say that in many cases, mold can be a driver and you don't even know it. Do you feel like with mold and autoimmune, I mean, everything that you just listed, obviously we have a specialist for and a subsequent medication to go with it. Do you hope or feel that in the next five, 10 some years that we're going to start seeing mold research exploration, root cause start to make its way into more mainstream as more education gets out there? Gosh, that would be my hope. And I think the difficulty is some of these things where there's like, we can talk environmental toxicity, very similar bucket. And it's so complex that it's hard to say single cause, single agent. And our medicine was Occam's razor was there's one cause, one thing that happens with it. It was very like, in some cases, that's the truth, but many times it's multifactorial. So the research and the, the teaching on it becomes very muddied and more complex, even though we know it's at the root of many things. I do think there's so much more awareness. I know you and I have seen on social people are starting to talk about it. And I think because of our toxic load and like the pandemic and people going in the pandemic, for example, all of a sudden people went indoors, been isolated, they closed their windows. They were, And we saw a resurgence and an increase in mold related issues because people were spending more time outdoors until the pandemic came. And then all of a sudden when they were inside, they were like, oh, I'm not feeling so well and became more of an issue. And then the quickness of buildings being put up and then materials being damaged in the rain. So there's a lot more things with construction that is being made of like porous materials. So instead of making your house of stone or concrete, it's much more like cardboard, which is like drywall and stuff that when they get soaked with water, they can grow mold. So the construction, the environmental toxic load, the being more indoors, the efficiency of buildings, which is good, but not good for mold. All these things are contributing to more and more issues. 
in medical school, just to frame this, we were taught that mold is an allergen, which is true. That is a part of the immune system called adaptive immunity, where you kind of maybe have an allergic response to cat or dog or mold. But what we're talking about is an innate immune response. And again, with COVID, we got a lot of terminology because all of a sudden we learned the general population, what's a cytokine, what's an inflammatory response. And that's what happens with mold. It's the same thing as what we saw with COVID with the poor outcomes and the complications was we have mold creates more cytokine production in the immune system, which causes internal damage that inflammatory response. And that's called innate immune system. And that is not taught in medicine standard. Unfortunately. Yeah. Unfortunately. And then people are finding it out the hard way because they're the ones who are getting all the symptoms or Mm -hmm. the diagnoses or the conditions or diseases, et cetera. Now I know everyone listening is like, ask her all the questions, Carrie, keep asking all the questions, but I want everyone to know that Jill is a wealth of resources. I mean, on her website, her, I subscribe to her newsletter. I mean, everything that she does is all about education. So even though this podcast won't be able to be 12 days long where I ask her all the questions, she is not without education and she hits it hard. So definitely make sure at the very least you're following her. But I want to wrap up with this question. Talk about living well in a toxic world. Living well in a toxic world, which is the toxic world is what we've been talking about. Give us tips. Help us navigate this better. Okay. I love to break it down. And you've heard me say this before, and it's in the book, clean air, clean water, clean food, because it'll be like, when you hear that, oh, that sounds easy, right? It's not easy, but it's fairly simple. And that's what makes it like more doable. Because so often, I remember years ago, Dr. Robert Roundtree, one of our heroes in functionalism, you call him King Bob. He's been around forever. Brilliant. And he would come and teach about environmental toxicity. And he's funny and so fun to listen to. But every time I heard his lecture, I'd be like, oh, we're all going to die. It's a toxic world. Like it was so depressing and he wasn't depressing. He was the best, one of the best lectures I've ever heard. So he was amazing, but this topic can be so depressing. And that's why I'm framing it like, okay, but you can do something. And I could give you all the expensive red light therapy, PMF mats, buy a big $10,000 sauna. You don't need to start expensive or complex. And that's the exciting thing. So clean air. Yes, an air filter would be great, but you could open your windows because any sort of air exchange will help. Dilution is a solution to pollution which means that as you get some more dilutional effect in your house, even if you know you have a mold problem and you open the windows or you get circulation of air, you're going to improve your circumstances. Now, I do happen to believe that air filters with a good HEPA filter and a VOC filter, which is volatile organic compounds that usually involves like carbon or charcoal or zeolite in the filter. So that'll filter out the things that are like formaldehyde or really small particulate. So that kind of filter in your bedroom is probably the way you want to start. That's number one, clean air, clean water, Drinking clean water is so foundational to everything that happens in detox. And typically we're buying water bottles at the store. We're getting BPA. Now we know like all of Colorado's water supply is contaminated with this PFAOs, which is like Teflon. So you really need a reverse osmosis water system in your house or get a pitcher in your fridge or get a countertop system, but something with either a carbon filter, a fluoride filter, or both, or a reverse osmosis. If you do have a reverse osmosis, which can filter your whole house water that's more expensive, um, it can deplete minerals. So you do need to make sure you're taking minerals but clean water and clean food. And it really starts with the intention to make sure you're getting, it's harder and harder to get clean food. You want to eat as much as possible organic. And if you can't afford it, you can focus on the dirty dozen and making sure that those, you can find them at environmentalworkinggroup.org. And they ever year list the most commonly contaminated pesticide, like maybe red peppers or strawberries or different foods like that. Whereas like bananas, as you peel them, maybe you can buy non-organic bananas and buy organic strawberries or something like that. So you can focus on those foods. Whenever you can buy local, avoid farm salmon, avoid some of these things that are super toxic that has a lot of uh, BPA in it. So 
all of these things, little bits are important and you can start with clean air, clean water, clean food. One of the things people don't think about besides just organic is a lot of times wheat, dairy, sugar, alcohol, those are big culprits for inflammation. So at the very least, if you suspect food sensitivities, you can go off wheat, gluten and dairy and sugar and you can get a pretty big benefit from that. There's some mind things and that's mindset. That's all the stuff we talked about relationship. And there's other levels of this, but at the core, that's where it starts. I love it. Oh my gosh. I love this so much. And honestly, I love that you talk about, you're very mindful of people's budgets because for a lot of us, for a lot of listeners, some have been going through it for a long time. They're years into their exchange of products and air and, and how they live their life. And for others, this is the very first time they've heard it. And it can sound financially overwhelming to make all these changes. So to know that even very inexpensive baby steps makes a big impact is important to know. Don't get overwhelmed with like, oh, I can't afford it. It's out of my budget. So I'm not going to do anything. Right. Don't take that mindset. Take the mindset of every little bit helps. And in the even the, I'm all about free, cheap, and easy. And the free, cheap, and easy is a great start. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Well, Dr. Jill, thank you so much for being on the Root Cause Medicine podcast today. Tell us all the places that we can find you so everyone can fangirl over you like I do and learn as much as possible. Oh, thank you. This has been so fun, Carrie. Follow me on Instagram, Dr. Jill Carnahan on Instagram, all the podcasts, everything we put through that so you can see what I'm doing. JillCarnahan.com is the website. But for the book, I mean, the cool thing is we've got some really cool free stuff. As you're listening to this, this is pre-order, but we'd love for you to get that because if you go to readunexpected.com, so just readunexpected.com, I've got a free, this is really cool, Carrie. I'm going to send you one. It's a coloring journal. So it's literally like a coloring book with a journal as you write some of the stuff that you learn from the book. I've got a free audio chapter that's hidden that isn't in the book that's recorded. So I got all kinds of free stuff. And if you do pre-order, you can go to readunexpected.com. But thank you most of all for having me and sharing because my goal is just to inspire and impact people's lives who are hurting and suffering. And they, the ones that don't know there's answers and you and I know there's more hope. If I can do that to one person, I've done my job. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you are an amazing person. This is absolutely an amazing book. Like I said, I read it cover to cover in the matter of a weekend. So once again, just thank you for sharing your knowledge, both in the book and coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.